Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. Okay, let's get right to it. You recently saw a great jukebox musical called Anne Juliet, and you met the guy behind all the songs in that musical. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, first of all, Anne Juliet is kind of a rewrite of Romeo and Juliet, and this is not giving away too much, but the idea is that what if Juliet lived? Right. And it's a wonderful, joyful, kind of very human type of a musical. Yes. Um, And it is based on all the songs were written by Max Martin. Right. And has he had a few hits or what? I mean, all the Backstreet Boys songs, you know, Bon Jovi, uh, Katy Perry. Right. Isn't one of the centerpieces of the show the song Roar by Katy Perry? Yes, it is. That is a powerful song when sung live and with a, you know, with a great group. And they had a great ensemble yeah. who can all sing their butts off. So it was fantastic. That's great. Yeah. And I, I had a chance to chat with Max about the, the song choices and, and, and how he reacted to them. I said, were there things that got completely transformed for you? in going to the stage from the studio. And he said, yes, in particular, one song, Baby One More Time. Oh, wow. And I won't give away any more about the moment that that happens, but it is very emotional and very powerful. And as it should with any great song, reveals depths that you didn't know were there. Right, yeah. It is a great song. You know, a lot of people have a lot to say about Britney. That first hit and Toxic and a number of first songs are so good, so good. And he said uh, that was the one song. He said that he'd been approached about the idea of doing a musical before. And his reaction was, you want to make a story out of my lyrics? (laughs) That's very, very humble, subtle guy. And he said, but they sort of had their way with Baby One More Time. And he said, as soon as he heard that, he knew they could do it. That's great. So that's the one. A great idea always needs like a trigger to open up the floodgates, I think. Yeah. And that would have been it for him. So I know a couple of people, a couple of good friends of mine who saw the show uh, when it was playing in Toronto, and they absolutely loved it. Like, they were euphoric about this show. So the show is in New York now. Check it out. It's called Anne Juliet. So, Tom, what artist's music would you like to see in a jukebox musical? Oh, man. You know, I kind of think like a British Invasion kind of jukebox musical with right. story because uh-huh. there's so there's a lot of really rich stuff there yes yeah, so that way you just could pick and choose the That's best right. songs from all different artists so if you just wanted to have needles and pins by the searchers and never see them again that would be cool that's right and patula clark and all that stuff and you talk about is it is it carnaby street like you talk about that mm. whole thing you can do so much with the fashion from that time i recently read a book called 1963, The Year Music Changed. And it was mostly set in England, you know, with the all the designers and all right, the musicians right, right. and all the artists and all that. That's and a that's, great theme. I love yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, maybe in a similar vein, maybe a musical that kind of juxtaposes the hippie movement mm-hmm. and the music of that with the upheaval of the mid to late 60s. I think that would be quite powerful too. Does hair kind of do that? Oh, maybe it does. I've never seen it. I was, afraid, I was afraid of the costumes. Or lack thereof. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a buddy of mine once said he was a DJ. He goes, that's from the musical Hair, which also describes the costumes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, Christopher, 
Over the last few weeks, we have featured the music and artists of the 60s. And remember when I said it was going to be a two-parter? Yes. I lied. <laughs> we have so many artists and so many great clips that we had to extend it to one more episode. We have the birds talking about protest music. Why Van Morrison's best-known hit was almost banned. And classic clips from Paul Revere and the Raiders, The Hollies, Neil Sedaka, Blood, Sweat and Tears, and the music of Woodstock. And as always... The podcast version is an extended one with even more bonus content. Let's get started with the 60s, part three. You, my brown eyed girl. From 1967, that's Van Morrison and the classic Brown Eyed Girl. A song, by the way, that Van never made a cent from because of a very bad contract that he signed with Bang Records. That might be one of the reasons why he didn't care so much for the song in later years. But there's also a weird story attached. He brings up a story that I'd never heard, that the lyrics to Brown Eyed Girl were originally considered controversial. Here's the story. Bert Burns, who was, then was head of Bang Records, uh, he called me up and he, he, said, he said, this record is a hit, only we have a, a problem with it, and it's becoming a major problem. You know? And I said, well, what's the problem? And he said, well, it's like the line making love in the green grass, right? So I, I thought it was key. I said, you've got to, you know, you must be joking. I mean, that's, that's, that kind of line is, um, I mean, it's like nursery rhymes or something, you know? Really? I mean, I really realized that, you know, but he said, no, for, no, seriously, a lot of people won't play it because of that line. I mean, what's the line is about, I mean, that's about as innocent as Bo Peep. Making love in the green grass. There's the offending line from Brown Eyed Girl, Van Morrison from 1967. Weirdly, when Polydor Records released Van's greatest hits in the early 90s, they used the re-edited version without the part about making love in the green grass. Such a strange choice. This is the 60s edition of Famous Lost Words, Part 3. and Mr. Tambourine Man from 1965, a real turning point in the fusion of folk and rock. The birds came to be associated with a movement somewhat by accident. Well, when we did protest songs, they were usually Dylan's songs, and he was sincere about them, and we were too when we sang them, but we didn't do them specifically for their protest value. In other words, we were not politicos. We were more musicians and, and performers. And if it happened to be a protest song, we would do it. We wouldn't uh, show a restraint in doing a song just because it was a protest song. We were behind a lot of those things uh, spiritually and emotionally, and uh, it wasn't our primary motivation. Okay, so let's continue with the music and the artists of the 60s. Tom, here's a fun clip with Neil Sedaka about how he got started, the support of Dick Clark, and the importance of a good doobie-doo. Let's go back to the early 1960s. Of course, before the British invasion, mm-hmm. um, what was it like uh, going on tour, do major concerts, uh, American Bandstand with Dick Clark? Oh, do you my. remember your first appearance? Dick Clark uh, put me on uh, just before my first big record. He was really one of the very big supporters and uh, very responsible for my success. He put me on the Beach Nuts Saturday Night Show and, of course, the show out of Philadelphia, the dance program every day. Mm-hmm. 
and it was a great thrill. There were only a few singer-songwriters in those days. You know, there was Sam Cooke and Paul Anka and myself and um, oh, Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison. Very few singer-songwriters. Okay, another big hit from 1962. I'd like to listen to it right now. Maybe you can give us some background on this. Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Once again, started with a title and a melody, and then we put the lyrics to it at the end. It was an um, interesting song because the lyrics were sad and the melody was happy. Do, 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 down, do, be, do, down, down. Comma, comma, down, do, be, do, down, down. We used to do a lot of doobie-doobies when we ran out of lyrics, you see. <laughs> That's how it all came about. Tra-la-las and doobie-doos. Comma, comma, down, doobie-doo, down, down. Breaking up is hard to do. Don't take your love. Breaking up is hard to do, 1962. Great story by the ebullient Neil Sedaka as we celebrate the 1960s. Ebullient? What, effusive was busy that day? I mean, come on. <laughs> Tom, Paul Revere and the Raiders were a party band with hits like Just Like Me and Hungry. So the follow-up, Kicks, a very darkly themed song lyrically, came as a surprise. It was written originally for Eric Burden and the Animals, but they passed on it. What it did, though, is it broadened the Raiders' appeal and was a smash hit of its own. Mark Lindsay has the story. A uh, pretty heavy song for its day. The lyrics were about drugs and whatnot, and uh, the song was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel. Uh, evidently, they must have had us in mind when they, uh, I don't know whether they had us in mind when they wrote it, but they had us in mind when they uh, submitted it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were actually a very different kind of a song from uh, the Stepping Out Just Like Me's we'd just done. Right. So, uh, it was kind of a, a step in a little different direction musically. Don't it seem like kicks just keep getting harder to find And all your kicks ain't bringing you peace of mind Before you find out it's too late Girl, you better get straight Kicks, Paul Revere and the Raiders from 1966. They had such a great run of hits in the 60s. And you got to admit, just Like Me was almost a punk song. I listened to that song yesterday, and I just couldn't believe how kind of tough it sounded. It was great. Boy, when I was a kid, that live album got a lot of play at our place. Oh, really? Much to my mother's chagrin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going now with the 60s. In this clip from the archives, here's Gary Brooker of Procol Harum talking about the classical influence on their biggest hit, Whiter Shade of Pale. People think that that was based on Bark cantatas and sleepers awake and various other bark tunes, where in fact it wasn't based or influenced or pinched from any bark piece at all. The idea of making the record was to get a good blend of organ and piano, do a blues vocal over the top, and to make it sound bark like. And that I think was quite successful on the record, and this led people to believe that it was a bark piece. We skip the Procol Harum from 1967 and Whiter Shade of Pale. What a distinctly unique sound. That clip was of Gary Brooker, who passed away in early 2022. Still to come on Famous Lost Words, we travel to the early 60s with a legendary songwriter, plus 
the man they called America's oldest living teenager. Famous Lost Words is heard on radio stations across Canada and as a podcast around the world on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Don't forget to rate and review the show. This is the 60s edition of Famous Lost Words. If you just can't get enough of the 60s, check out past episodes for interviews with the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, Roy Orbison, the band, and many, many others. Okay, Christopher, who's next? Gene Pitney, perhaps not forgotten, but certainly not celebrated, was a major figure on record and behind the scenes. He had success as an artist with hits like Town Without Pity, It Hurts to Be in Love, and 24 Hours from Tulsa, and as a songwriter on hits like Rubber Ball, Hello Mary Lou, for Rick Nelson, and a song that he tells the story of writing in this next clip, a song that is one of the ultimate girl group songs. So he's a rebel you wrote, and the Crystals recorded, and the Crystals recorded that largely because of your association with Phil Spector at the time? No. No? No, that's one of the... That's the only song that I ever sat down and said, I'm going to write a song, their next hit. I remember where I was. I was in front of the Connecticut Bank and Trust Company in my car uh, at a parking meter, and I heard Uptown, which mm-hmm. Phil had just cut. And it was the first time he had introduced, like, the low fiddles in a funky way with a, a, a black rock group. And I just loved what he did. And I said to myself, I'm going to write their next hit, never thinking in a million years I could do it. And I started, I had this word rebel going around in my head for a long time. And I wrote three full drafts of the song. And the, the, the key to, to a successful song to me that I wrote was that once I was all finished, I would put down... Uh, the lead vocal, say, and play piano on one tape recorder. And because I didn't have any sophisticated stuff or any money, I would play that tape recorder back and then play guitar and the harmony onto another tape recorder. Then I would listen back to the tape. And if it was crap, you just scrunch up all the papers and throw it in a trash can and, and start all over again. Hmm. And with Rebel, the third time around, I finally got it right. Matter of fact, sometimes when you get it right and it starts flowing, you can do it in a half hour. Yeah. I mean, you can run dry for weeks and weeks on end with nothing happening. And then once you click and you're right in gear, everything just happens to work. And Phil came in, listened to it, and knew what he had. We knew, as a matter of fact. We knew that that was a hit once we cut the demo in New York. From 1962, The Crystals and He's a Rebel, written by Gene Pitney. And in this next clip, Gene looks back on one of the busiest and most memorable times of his life. Were you on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars? Oh, God. There's a... There's probably there's, half an hour's worth of stories there. There's handprints on the bus rails of, of my, my hands on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars. <laughs> the biggest one that we ever did, I tell people about, they don't believe it. 72 days long, 68 playing days... It's four days off, and we stayed in a hotel every third day. How about the Rolling Stones? A lot of people maybe aren't aware that you were involved with the Rolling Stones on a couple of their, uh, you know, of their tunes. On their first album, you played piano on Little by Little. Right. Yeah. How did Gene Pitney, who is as far removed from the Rolling Stones as you could <laughs> possibly be musically, I think, how did, how did you get involved with them? My publicist in England, Andrew Lou Golden, was their manager. And Andrew was a... He was a, such a. He must have been like seventeen, I think, when he managed the Stones and was doing my publicity. Um, lived out of my hotel room. He used to live on uh, tea and biscuits that made him survive all day long. And doing publicity, he said to me one day, he said, "You got to come and see this group." He said that they're, they're tearing play, and this is prior to having the first record. And I've always told people that because it just showed the strength of um, not just the group in general, but Jagger especially. And they were just tearing places apart that they were working in. And they had long hair, which the world had not seen yet at that mm-hmm. time. 
Longer than the Beatles. <laughs> Row, it was very, very long. So it was through Andrew Lou Goldham then that you ended up on the session, was it? Well, not just the session. I mean, we got to know each other. We did TV shows together. We used to hang out together. And uh, they're much different than the image that's projected by them. I mean, of course, they've, they've gone through their, their wild times. Who hasn't? But, I mean, Mick especially. I mean, he's a graduate of the uh, London School of Economics, and he, his, uh, his friends are so removed mm -hmm. from the rock side of thing. I mean, ballet people and uh, Catherine Deneuve and people like that. That uh, it's, it's brilliant what he's done to project the image of one side and mm -hmm. we're really the guys totally the other way around, you know, inside. I had him. a chance to spend not a lot of time, but an hour, which is really a lot of time for anybody who's not close to him. I spent about an hour with him in Barbados when we were down there for mm -hmm. a broadcast about a year ago. And he was a real gentleman. Oh, absolutely. Just a real gentleman. He sure is. That's Roger Ashby in conversation with Gene Pitney from the late 1980s. That's Les Elgart. And even though that's from 1954, that's the theme from Bandstand called Bandstand Boogie. <laughs> wow. Tom... Dick Clark was a giant of the rock and roll business. He was an entrepreneur who provided a venue for the stars of the 50s, 60s, and beyond to reach a national audience. How did Dick Clark do it? Well, he's got his story down pat. I saw a radio show many, many years ago with Jimmy Durante and Gary Moore and said, gee, I'd like to be in the radio business. I went to school at Syracuse, became a disc jockey. When I graduated, I was a disc jockey in school. I went as a mailroom boy at a radio station in the summertime. I was a weatherman, the polka parade, the hillbilly disc jockey. Ended up being a newscaster on television. Decided that I uh, wanted to move to a larger market. I was in Utica, New York at that time. Went to Philadelphia. They made me a disc jockey again. I did a five or six hour radio show in the afternoon. And eventually in 1956, fell heir to a program that was called The Bandstand in Philadelphia. I did that for a year, and I was scared to death that the network was going to preclude the time and take it over in the afternoon. They had old, old English movies on, and uh, they were going to drop the movies and do something else. So I ran up there with a, a film of the show and said, this is what I do. This is why we have 67% of the audience in Philadelphia. Of course, the greatest one single quote I ever heard was, who the hell would want to watch kids dancing to rock and roll records from Philadelphia? They put the show on in the spring of 1952, and it was a game show, a quiz show, telephone quizzes, Snader musical films, kids dancing in the studio, potpourri of many, many things. And it evolved that as people watched the kids dance together, that was the focal point. By the end of the week, it was all dancing and records. And the kids who used to dance in that show drew 15,000 pieces of mail a week. It's the largest mail count of any television show in history. Oh, wow. You can tell he told that story a lot. And uh -huh. I love the way he said the words disc jockey as, as though no <laughs> one had ever heard of that profession before. <laughs> I got to tell you, um, have we talked about this? The first concert that I ever attended was the Dick Clark Cavalcade of Stars at Maple Leaf Gardens featuring the Orlons, Johnny Tillotson, <laughs> Paul and Paula, the Crystals and Gene Pitney. It was oh, hosted wow. live by uh, 1050 Chums, Dave Johnson, who was the uh, the evening jock uh, at the time, and Dick yeah. Clark. Wonderful. And what they used to do, though, which was funny, was that they, they had all these pre-recorded clips of Dick saying things like, say, Dave, what's the time in Toronto? <laughs> you know, what's the weather <laughs> going to be like? And then Dave would plug in the current information. So this was the only time we actually got to see them live and doing a real exchange That's of information. Great. 
Yeah, it was cool. This is Famous Last Words. I'm Tom Jokic, a one-time disc jockey with Christopher <laughs> Ward, the original Much Music video jockey. And we're celebrating arguably the greatest decade of music, the 60s. Here's another band that has some songs that have lasted through the years, the Four Seasons. Now, is it possible that Clark Gable had anything to do with one of the band's biggest hits? Stay tuned as Frankie Valli tells the tale. Big Girls Don't Cry was, uh, well, the idea was conceived by uh, Bob Crew, who was sitting and watching an old movie. And uh, I think it was a, a movie that Clark Gable was starring in. And one of his lines in it was, he was talking to his leading lady in the movie, and, he, and she was crying, and he said something like, Big Girls Don't Cry. And that's where that idea came from. Four Seasons from 1962 and Big Girls Don't Cry. They had such a great run of hits, and of course their story was so well told in the musical Jersey Boys. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with fellow music lover Christopher Ward. By the way, the podcast version of this episode has even more bonus content, including my chat with Felix Cavalieri of The Rascals and a really personal interview with Connie Francis, who talks about the moment her life changed forever. You're going to want to hear that. Up next, how an infamous Aretha Franklin recording session in Alabama almost led to a fistfight. Famous Last Words is heard on radio stations across Canada and in more than 100 countries around the world. The best thing you can do to support the show is follow us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast platform, and don't forget to rate and review the show. Please don't forget to tell the music geek in your life about Famous Last Words. Now, more from the 60s. Nineteen sixty-seven, the Hollies and Carrie Ann. By the way, cool song fact about Carrie Ann: it started as "Hey Mr. Man" instead of "Hey Carrie Ann," then "Hey Marianne" <laughs> for Marianne Faithful. They actually made up the name Carrie Ann for that song, and Canadian actress Carrie Ann Moss, who was in The Matrix, was named for that song, and so was my niece. Well, 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 and a shout out to your niece, Carrie Ann. <laughs> That's right. Alan Clark has a great story about how the Hollies got their name. Well, when we got ourselves established as a sort of a Manchester-based group in, in like 1960, and we were under the name of the Dominus's Rhythm at that particular time, and like in 62, the Beatles came on the scene, but they had been on the scene for a long time anyway, you know, previously like from Liverpool. There was a competition between us and the Beatles because they used to call us Manchester's Beatles and we didn't like it. You know, so we went over to Liverpool and played the cavern and we just showed them that, you know, we were other than that. So anyway, the Liverpoolians took us, you know, to their hearts. And when the Beatles made it and the mass exodus of, uh, of managers, the, the, the southern managers, you know, they says, hey, you know, this group has got something. Let's go up and sign everything in sight. So how did the name Hollies come about? This guy had booked us for the one night, which was Christmas. and We didn't have a name because we just formed the day before. And uh, we said, well, what are we going to call ourselves when we go on stage, man? You know, I mean, we, you've got to be introduced. So we, we sat down. It was in a club called The Oasis, and we started writing names down on pieces of paper. And we think, the deadbeats, no, no, that doesn't sound too good, no. Oh, well, and this and that, Freddie and the Beanstalks, and, you know, things like that. Nothing worked. And the guy says, right, you're due on stage. What am I going to call you? So we looked around. There was, as it was Christmas, there was a lot of holly around. So he said, oh, well, call us the hollies for tonight. 
and it stuck. They had to wait to get a shot at North America, but it did eventually come. Yeah, well, we, we never used to sort of, like, in the old days, we never used to bother about, like, you know, places outside of England. Because, like, you know, we, we only got hits in England. I mean, it was unheard of, of an English group to get in, like, you know, the American charts or the Canadian charts or, or anywhere else, you know, if it comes to that. And all of a sudden, you start getting phone calls, like, from your, your American company. Hey, we got a hit, we want you to come over. So, you know, what are we going to do in America? Nobody knows. There's one hit. Okay, so the Paramount came out of that. When we came to Canada, and we started, like, when I say Bus Stop was the most important song to me, because when it made the charts in America and it was big, the American market accepted us for the Hollies. The Hollies are part of the scene and the same sort of thing as the Beatles and things like that. Yeah. And so we started becoming Globetrotters. And, like, you know, for the past, for the past eight years, we've been just going around the world continuously. You know, which is great, I'd have it no other way. You know, Tom, one of the first shows that I ever saw was the Hollies at the Hidden Valley Ski Resort. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was not an ideal venue to see a band, but they sounded amazing to me. And I remember at the very end of the show, Graham Nash introduced their last song saying, here's an old Elvis song called Milk Cow Blues. And then immediately they went into this incredible version of Bus Stop. Oh, that's funny. That is a great song with a great performance. It's a kind of pop that really kind of encapsulates that time of the 60s. Wonderful. You know what? I agree with you because for me, like if we were to play that song right now, I would still get pop shivers just listening to it again. Yes. All these years later. Pop shivers. That's perfect. Tom, the legendary Muscle Shoals studio in Alabama produced some of the greatest records of the 60s and 70s. Producer Rick Hall is not shy when talking about the work they did there. Aretha Franklin had never had a hit record when I produced her first record, and her first record was the number one record. But it was called I Ain't Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, and the B-side was also a big hit record called Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. Aretha came to me through Jerry Wexler, who was part owner and president, or vice president, executive vice president of Atlantic Records. And that is another story, but I'll start back a little behind that. Uh, I met Jerry Wexler through a promotion man by the name of Joe Galkin out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he called Jerry one night at his house. We were having drinks. He said, I want you to speak to Jerry Wexler because he's a good record man. And I said, look, I've always wanted to be with Atlantic Records because of the image they had of uh, Ray Charles and a lot of the black acts that were big, the platters and the coasters, etc., etc. And I admired the label, what they'd done. So I wanted to be affiliated with them. So he called him and I spoke to him. He said, well, maybe we can do some business together. He said, if you get something you like, send it to me. Well, in about three weeks, I sent him a record on an act that we'd produced in Muscle Shoals by the name of Percy Sledge, and it was called When a Man Loves a Woman. It was the number one record. And I said, Jerry, I've got a record I'm sending you that is without any, I'm telling you this, without any qualifications. It's a number one record. It is an absolute number one, not number two or number three. It is a number one record. Percy Sledge, When a Man Loves a Woman, and yep, Rick Hall is not lacking for confidence. You know, if I had that confidence, I would never miss another three-foot putt in golf ever again. (laughs) Rick Hall talks about working with Aretha on her first hit single and why that was the last he saw of her. Wexler then said to me, uh, I've got this young lady that I think is a fantastic singer, and I don't know if I can get her off the ground. She's been with Columbia for five years, and she hasn't had any hits, but I think she's a great talent. I think they're, 
recording her wrong, and I think that they're not they're not spending much money on her promotion-wise uh, and so forth. And he said her name is Aretha, Aretha Franklin. And I said, well, I've never heard of her, but I'd like to hear her. You know, I'll, if you think she's that good, I'll and uh, if you're going to put the company funds behind her, I'd like to try a shot with her. So Jerry came down, and they stayed uh, the one day. Aretha and myself and the musicians and so forth. And we recorded two sides. That's the only two sides I ever produced on Aretha. It was her first, number, first hit record. Because uh, Aretha and her husband at the time, that night after the session, we got into a squabble and almost had a fist fight. I did with her husband. He left the next day with Aretha, and I never saw her. Uh, Ted White was his name, but uh, the record was... Uh, I produced on her. The first hit record we had was that day was uh, I Ain't Lev Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And the, the B-side was uh, Do Right Woman, Do Right Man. Well, uh, she, wrote that, she wrote that song herself and she brought that material in. Aretha Franklin, I Ain't Never Loved a Man. You know, Rick seems to have a history of disagreements with the talent, but you can't <laughs> argue with the hits. Here, he talks about the legendary, the wicked Wilson Pickett. Okay, well, Wilson Pickett was sent to me by Jerry Wexler, and Wilson was originally from Prattville, Alabama. Well, that's, that was his home. He grew up in Alabama, so he was quite home there. But uh, he sent him down and said, we're having trouble getting hit records on him, and maybe you can cut a hit record on him. And I said, fine. So we made the deal, got the contracts out of the way, and... Uh, I produced, uh, I think the first hit we had, yeah, the first hit we had with Wilson was uh, Land of a Thousand Dances. The next record, I think, was Funky Broadway, then came uh, uh, Mustang Sally and uh, Hey Jude. Anyhow, we had five, I think it was five gold records in a row with him. He was violently opposed to the thing. In fact, Wilson was opposed to most of the things we did together. Uh, he was opposed to Hey Jude because we were right on the heels of the Beatles record, if you remember. They just sold about three million records on Hey Jude and... Uh, and it was still red hot, so everybody thought it was a crazy move, but uh, uh, after it came out, it was a hit. Nobody, of course, doubted it then. Nineteen sixty-six, Mustang Sally Wilson Pickett. Yes, I know he was talking about Hey Jude there, but you can't talk about Wilson Pickett and not play Mustang Sally Ride, Sally Ride. Thank you for doing that. That was Palisades Park by Freddie Cannon from 1963. You know, Freddie, he's a charming guy, and he tells a great story about his first time as a headliner. Uh, I was doing a lot of Dick Clark Caravan tours. As you know, they were around then, too. But then they, became, they got a little strong, and they were doing even more. So he would play state fairs. He has a habit and has told everybody that he likes me to open up shows because of the style of music I do it and get the crowd in a good mood and a good groove or whatever it may be that I open up good enough that the people get in the in the in the excitement mood so he says to me tonight Freddie we were in Scranton Pennsylvania at the Scranton State Fair he said Freddie tonight I'm letting you close the show this is your big chance he really this is the way he said it he said now, I don't want you to blow it you are the headliner tonight so he puts all the acts on it gets close to the end 
And he announces me in the star of the show, blah, 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 Freddie Cannon. And I come out, and then places rocking. And now the people, you have to visualize this. It's hard to visual over the radio. But people in, in fairgrounds usually, and this is the way it was here, sit up in bleaches. Oh, I would say, I don't know how many hundreds of yards away because we were out on the racetrack on a portable stage, and this is where the show was. And when the people to watch us had to use binoculars to be able to see faces of the acts on the stage. The binoculars were on me, and it was just sparkling. Everybody was looking, they were clapping. Who was looking through the binoculars? All of a sudden, I seen the binoculars. They were going off of me, and they all were turning like a, like a tennis match. And they were going the other way, and they were looking. Now, I'm first time starring in a show. What they had done, they let the horses loose. There was a horse race going on, and the horses closed the show, and that was the end of Freddie Cannon's closing act. And they stole the show away from me. Dick said, you blew it again. <laughs> <laughs> Great storytelling from Freddie Boom Boom Cannon. Still to come on the 60s edition of Famous Lost Words, a group takes two songs from one of the biggest Broadway shows and turn them into a hippie classic. And speaking of hippies, we'll get deep down in the mud at Woodstock, man. Famous Lost Words is heard on radio stations across Canada and in more than 100 countries around the world. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, and this week we are wrapping up our epic three-part series on the 60s. If you have a big 60s fan in your life, tell them about these shows and show them how to follow Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or any other podcast platform. Sixty-seven, Aquarius, the fifth dimension. Tom, some hits are accidents, as we now know from hearing all these great stories, but some are the product of a great creative idea. Aquarius, bracket, let the sunshine in, bracket, is an example of the latter. We were in New York appearing at uh, the Americana Hotel at the time, and uh, everybody wanted to see hair. Well, I had uh, I'd heard about the song, and... Uh, the group went over to hear about it, and uh, we said, let's do it right away. Well, Bones at the time didn't, didn't see the song, so he listened to the album, the live album from Hair, and uh, he came up with the idea, after listening to it for about a week or two, he came up with the idea of putting Let the Sunshine in with it. He said that it needs something else besides just uh, Aquarius alone. And that's when he came up with the idea of let the sunshine in going in behind it. And that's how we recorded it. Oh, yeah, there's the second half of that song right there. 1967, Let the Sunshine In. Fifth Dimension, what a fantastic medley. And talk about capturing the spirit and diversity of the 60s in that moment. Another wonderful example of that. Have you seen their performance in Summer of Soul by any chance? Christopher, you keep telling me to watch that, and I've watched the first half, and yes, I actually have even more respect for The Fifth Dimension um, after seeing their performance in Summer of Soul, which is an Oscar-winning documentary created by Questlove, and he does a great job mm -hmm. on it, and the movie is just so great, presenting black music from basically this, right around the same time as Woodstock as a concert that happened in New York City, 
around that same time. It is a wonderful, highly recommended movie called Summer of Soul. It's one of the best music movies I've ever seen. Absolutely. Flat out. Okay, Christopher, let's change gears. Tom, The Impressions was the launching pad for one of the greatest singer-songwriter producers of the era, Curtis Mayfield. In this clip, one of his bandmates explains how gospel found its way into their music. On our albums, we generally uh, 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 always put something religious on it. Some inspiration. I don't know. It just this is just part of maybe our roots that we 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 always uh, from the church. Everybody that sung in the group uh, was uh, raised in the church, and and we always find some kind of reason i don't know why it always comes up that we put up put a song in there because uh if it if it it wasn't a people get ready it was a song called he's right on time but he's right right on time (laughs) and uh, you know these type of thing they always we always put at least one in them so people get ready there's a train Goosebumps right there, 1965, People Get Ready, The Impressions. Such wonderful guitar work, great use of strings, and those vocals. All of it, all of it make one of the most classic records of all time for me. I just uh, never tire of listening to that track. On the other hand, one that I did get tired of hearing about... (laughs) Oh, we're talking about our next song here? Yeah, we're doing a complete 180. And this is a silly song, a novelty hit, but boy, was it ever big. And we're talking about Bobby Boris Pickett and the Monster Mash, okay? Silly song, but this is really a great story about where the idea came from. We used to do a tune called Little Darling. If you remember, the Diamonds had had the record on it. And in the... In the middle of, of that tune, there's a narration where, where the guy used to, used to say, my dollar and I need you. Only I used to do Boris Karloff, and it used to go over really well. When he suggested that we write a, a novelty tune centered around the idea that Boris Karloff would play the part of a mad scientist and be uh, fooling around with his monster and he'd get up and do the latest dance craze. And at that time, we thought it was the twist, but after a little research, it became the mashed potato. The original name of the song was The Monster Mashed Potato. <laughs> and then we knocked off the potato, just called it Monster Mash. But it it came very easily because I'd been doing the Boris Karloff impersonation all my life. I just, I was a, you know, a, a horror film freak. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. 1962 Monster Mash, Bobby Boris Pickett. If you want to see and? an absolutely, oh, and the Crypt Kicker 5. <laughs> Thank you. I just we needed, we needed to give it. You know what? If mom isn't going to get any credit, at least the Crypt Kicker 5 can be recognized for who they are and were. Exactly. By the way, if you want to see a mind-boggling performance from the 60s, check out Bobby Boris Pickett lip-syncing that song on American Bandstand. The contortions <laughs> he does with his face are wondrous. And it's similar to yeah. what my face looks like when I try to say the name of that guitarist, Ingve Malmsteen. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, like the oatmeal got stuck to the roof of your mouth or something. Yes, I look like a camel trying to eat a camera. <laughs> wow. There's a picture for all time. Let's talk about Woodstock. Oh, I was seven, man, but I still remember Woodstock. (laughs) Tom, Melanie tells a beautiful and personal story of playing at Woodstock and how it led to one of her best love songs. 
I, I had a good feeling about it. I thought, yeah, I'd really like to do that. I felt that it was going to be a really good thing. And um, when I finally got there, I said, oh, I can't go in front of all those people. <laughs> and uh, it was one of these things that went on for, you know, three days, right? So uh, they kept saying, you're on next, and I wouldn't be, you know, like I'd, I'd maybe was in the wrong place or something, and, and then somebody else would go on. And so, like, I was about to go on for three days, you know, and finally, um, after all that anticipation and waiting, I, 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 was, I was unconscious by the time I got on. I was just, like, dazed. I, I couldn't believe what was happening. I couldn't believe, uh, I mean, and I was really unconscious, partially from fear and, and partially just from exhaustion, you know. Toward the end of my set, uh, people started lighting candles, and, and it looked so incredible. I mean, it was just... And you to look out at, at the uh, masses and masses of people just with little lights and you know, just flickering and it was just so beautiful to look at. It was magic. It was a religious meeting, if I've ever known one. That is a passionate performance. Candles in the Rain, Melanie from 1970. And that must have been an amazing moment at Woodstock. All those candles and lighters held aloft among almost half a million people. When David Clayton Thomas joined Blood, Sweat and Tears, they hit a whole new plateau with hits and Grammys to follow. It made sense that they would be asked to headline what became the concert event of the decade, but that's not exactly what happened. Thomas breaks down an odd situation in this clip. 1969, when, when the album, the, very, the first album that you were on came out, and uh, you won yourself a Grammy, quite a Grammy. Well, actually, yeah, we, we did win five, actually, yeah. but the one that was really significant was the album of the year. And beating out Abbey Road, which is, uh, you know, I don't think it's an oversight, it's just that that was the competition that was there, it was that good. Wow, what a memory that was. It was. There are rumors still... The persisting that, you know, the older we all get, the more of us went to Woodstock. Oh, yeah, man, I was at Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, I was at Woodstock, too, you know. But in actual fact, most of us weren't. Uh, their rumors still persist that Blood, Sweat, and Tears played uh, Woodstock, so you can set the rumors straight right now. Well, you know, the, old, the saying I like is if you remember Woodstock, you weren't there. <laughs> uh, yeah, we headlined the Saturday night. Actually, there were three or four major headliners that didn't make it onto the record mm -hmm. uh, because the headliners... Um, Janis Joplin, Bob Dylan, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, all had agreements with the promoters that we would get a piece of the film and recording rights. And the thing was such a, uh, a financial debacle, and everybody there were lawsuits flying, and it was just such a mess that the promoters actually cut all the headliners out of the album. So for the last 30 years, I've been answering people, <laughs> You know, my daughter says to me, Dad, tell him you really did play at Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, we were there. Well, finally, uh, but it was... you know, what happened was the all the all the opening acts were the ones that actually got on the album and were in the first film. Mm -hmm. None of the headliners you'll find are, are, are in the... Uh, Dylan's not in it. No. The Grateful Dead isn't in it. Blood, Sweat, and Tears, of yeah. course, is not in it. Uh, you know, so basically all the new emerging acts that were just basically paid for that night only, they were the ones that are in. And, and of course, Richie Havens has become the, the symbol of, yeah. of Woodstock and a dear friend of mine, too. Wow. But it, it, it kind of stung that over the years we were kind of edited out of history, along with the Grateful Dead and, uh, and Janis Joplin and everybody else that headlined, actually, at Woodstock. 
From 1968, that's Spinning Wheel, David Clayton Thomas, with Blood, Sweat and Tears. And Christopher, it wasn't until this very moment that I found out that Blood, Sweat and Tears played at Woodstock. And then they were not featured on the soundtrack album. That's wild. Now, I know that there's a lot of reissues of that that have included artists that were left off the original soundtrack. Isn't there one that has like 30 discs of music that would they not be included in that if there was a sort of completist approach? I'm sure they are. And also, let's talk about the fact that the that, that first Blood, Sweat and Tears album with David Clayton Thomas beat out Abbey Road for Album of the Year at the Grammys. Right. Wild, isn't it? That's crazy. <laughs> hey, absolutely. By the way, that's Gord James interviewing David Clayton Thomas in the 1990s. And if you want to read a great memoir about the 60s, including the formation of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Al Cooper the originator, the the guy who founded the band, wrote an amazing book called Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards, and I would very highly recommend that book. And yes, the book is as irreverent as its title. Okay, let's go to 1961. That's Bobby V and Take Good Care of My Baby. Tom, the relationship between an artist and a songwriter, or team of writers, is often essential to the artist's success. The Tuesday Night Music Club and Sheryl Crow. Mm-hmm. Bacharach and David for Dionne Warwick, or Holland Dozier and Holland for The Supremes. Yeah. Bobby V talks about the importance of Carol King's songs in his success. Okay, just a warning before we get to the clip. There's a guy named Danny who is making an unholy ruckus while Bobby is trying to talk, but thankfully Bobby eventually sets him straight. Have a listen. The first Carol King song that I recorded was called How Many Tears, and uh, on the session uh, that I recorded that song, Carol and her husband at that time, Jerry Goffin, flew out to Los Angeles to be there when we recorded it, and um, it was a double session. We did a three-hour session, then took a break and did another three-hour session, and during the break, she sat down at the piano and sang uh, a couple of songs for me, and uh, uh, that was one of them. And so we told her when she got back to New York to put them down on demo for us and, and send them and that we wanted to record them, which we did. And uh, it was sort of started, it was really the start of a relationship. Uh, hey, Danny? Yeah. Cool a little bit, will you? Uh, can you keep it down a little bit? Uh, it really developed, that was really the start of uh, a relationship that went on for three or four years. Uh, she just just about all the songs that they wrote they sent to me so I was, I was fortunate to get a lot of you know good material great audio from bobby v despite <laughs> danny doing all he could do to drown it out by dismantling a building or whatever it was he was doing in the background <laughs> okay let's keep going with the 60s all right sir connie francis was one of the biggest names in pop music in the early 1960s but the british invasion saw the hits all but dry up She still had a great career, but a life that was marked with tragedy. Here, she talks about her music as nostalgia and the moment her life changed. Connie, it is delightful to meet you, I must say. This is the first time that uh, I've actually had the chance to shake your hand. I bought all your records and all that. Oh, don't do that to me. (laughs) 
There are so many. You are you represent so much nostalgia for for a lot of people. I, maybe that's a word you don't like to hear. Oh, I yeah? love to hear it. Do you? Oh, sure. You know, when something is ten or fifteen years old, it's passe. When it's twenty or twenty-five years old, it's nostalgia. And because if if you think back at it, this is really the first period of nostalgia for for our age group of people, the people who grew up with rock, uh-huh. the people who grew up from 1957 through that period on, uh, everything before that was our parents' music. Can you still remember very vividly those that day when on the, the Dick Clark American Bandstand show, I think it was 1958, when they, they uh, played your record for the first time? Oh, it's indelible in my mind. Uh, it, was, it was January 1st, 1958. It was a holiday, first New Year's Day. There were enough Italians at my house and enough food to feed Ecuador. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, like 8.5 million other American teenagers, I jumped up from the, from the dinner table and went over at 4 o'clock to turn on my 16-inch black and white TV set. And my idol, you know, I mean, America, let's face it, American bandstand had become a way of life uh-huh. for kids. And um, I turned on Dick Clark, and, and I heard, and at this point, MGM had just informed me that Who's Sorry Now, which had been out for three months and did nothing, just as my other nine previous bombs had done nothing, they were dropping my contract. It was all over for me. The record had been out three months. It went down into the opera the way everything else did. <laughs> and Dick Clark said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new girl singer. And I said, well, good luck to her. <laughs> Feeling real sorry for myself. And she's headed straight for the number one spot. Miss Connie Francis. I said, oh, got to be another Connie Francis. Oh, you know. And <laughs> like in five seconds flat, I knew my life had changed. And boy, did it ever. Wow. In one year's time, the changes were incredible. From 1960, Everybody's Somebody's Fool, the great Connie Francis. That was wonderful. And even though Connie was describing the events of 1958 in that clip, we just had to play it because it launched her career, and she was an incredibly successful artist throughout the 60s as well. I thought this interview kind of revealed a very charming and self-aware artist, didn't you? Oh, for sure. Listen to this part. The first time you got back on that stage to perform after being away for so long. There's no high in the world like it. I mean, there there is no business. You say, you know, the the cliche, there's no business like show business. There is none. Because it it, here's a career where you're doing the thing you love doing best. You're extravagantly rewarded financially, but in so many other ways, just for doing what you love doing best. And as a byproduct of that, you also make millions of people happy. Wow. I mean, how, how could you have a better life than that if you've got your head on straight, right? Your show at the Imperial Room, first time you've ever performed in Toronto at Royal York Hotel, starts this Wednesday and runs through till the 25th of May. Tell me about the, the kind of show you're doing. Well, we do some new things. We do some old things. We do a Chicago song, Inspiration, and we do a big band thing on I Don't Want to Walk Without You. The, the hit medley uh, <clears throat> is uh, about 30, 35 minutes long, and in it we're using visuals. We're using the, the day Dick Clark first made that announcement. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, headed straight for the number one spot, and, and all of the old visuals of Bobby Darren and myself and, and uh, lots of the, of the stars and the teenage idols of that period of time. It's a real nostalgia trip. It's, it, everybody just seems to be loving it especially me. And I think you're an inspiration, don't you see, for so many other people who have been through much less than you. Well, my, my first song of the show is called Inspiration. I hope that I am. I, I hope that the, these two books that I write will be even a bigger inspiration because it's, it's one thing to have nebulous ways to get your life together, but this is a formula. 
of mm. getting your life together. And uh, I, I couldn't be happier these days. I wish everybody could feel the way I do. That's Connie Francis in conversation with broadcaster Brian Thomas in the late 1980s. And you can tell that Connie was in a really great place there. And she had gone through a lot in her life up to that point. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end From 1967, that's the Moody Blues and Nights in White Satin. In this brief clip, Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues talks about pleasing their audience. The feeling that you get, say, with with songs like Nights in White Satin, Tuesday Afternoon, you know, and Seesaw, I mean, it's... I I know if I went to see my favourite artist and they didn't play their old hits, I'd be very disappointed. And, um... I think we are, we're all aware of what songs like that mean to, to our audience, and it's a very special, very special feeling when we play those songs. That's Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues, and they were one of the few 60s bands to have a real second act when they had a number of hits in the early 80s, like Gemini Dream and The Voice, and those were really good songs that suited the original sound of the band but still felt good and felt like they fit on the charts in the 1980s. This is Famous Last Words. Our tribute to the 60s continues on the count of three. One, two, three. From 1966, The Rascals and Good Lovin'. What a cover version. Tom, when did you meet up with Felix Cavalieri of The Rascals, and what was your impression? I've met Felix twice now, first for this interview in 1989 that I did with Roger Ashby, and the second time in 2013 for the Toronto debut of their Broadway show, The Rascals' Once Upon a Dream, which was essentially like a Jersey Boyles, a Jersey Boyles, <laughs> a Jersey Boys style production, where the story is told by way of the music. But the very cool thing is that the music was played by the reunited Rascals themselves, and it was exceptional. I was particularly impressed by Felix, who was about 70 years old at the time and still had the chops on the keyboards, and his vocals were not only still soulful, they were right on the money melodically. And Christopher, the drummer, Dino Donnelly, was incredible. So inventive and on the money, and he does things with sticks while he's playing, so he's kind of fancy, but he is spot on the beat. And it was incredible Mm. to see them reunite and have their story told. And the very end, with People Gotta Be Free, was absolutely euphoric. It was wonderful. Oh, boy. I'm sorry I missed that one. Yeah. I got to say, in listening back, he seems like a very philosophical guy. In this opening clip, we get his take on the corporatization of music. I think what happened happened after Woodstock. You see, I think Woodstock was the was the beginning of the Wall Street uh, plunge into the rock and roll industry. And after that, it was pretty much all over. And it was now no longer a little thing where people basically were, would get together and make music and have a good time. Now it was a big, giant business run by corporations. The me generation comes in, the we generation comes in. The 60s were definitely we's. And, uh, you know, me's, with all due respect, are the most boring human beings, the most selfish human beings I've ever seen in my life. Now, I'm sure they feel the same way about us. We're a bunch of communists. But I would rather share with the masses than to keep for myself. And that's how most of us felt in those days. A lot of the spirit of what you're talking about, um, a lot of the songs carried that spirit in the 60s, the late, particularly the late 60s. And those songs seem to still have their relevance today. Yeah. Like, people got to be free. Yeah, it's true. You know, that song 
particularly has very strong relevance today. Which means that we've, we, we really haven't done a hell of a lot to fix a lot of the problems that we had in those days, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Felix really does seem to embrace the 60s generation ethos, that's for sure. Here, Felix tells Roger Ashby the great story of how the Rascals came to be on Atlantic Records. Curious to know how Atlantic treated you, because Atlantic was one of the first independent record companies to go way back to the 40s. And they gave a lot of the black artists the break, and I'm sure one of the reasons they signed you guys is because you sounded black. Yeah, we were the first uh, white act to be on the red and black Atlantic label. Yeah. What about yeah. Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler and all those people? Were they were they the nice people that the books portray them to be? Or? Well, no, they're not really nice people. I wouldn't say they were nice people, but they were nice in terms of what they did with us. Uh, basically, what happened was they, they came and, and heard a band that they could deal with, you know, when they had all black artists. Uh, we had an excellent, an excellent attorney at the time, and we worked out a deal wherein... As I say, they wanted to put a staff producer, and they wanted, to, and it, we, I said, no, we're not going to do that. You're not going to take this concept from me. And well, you know, here's this, this, you know, I was a young kid, man, and I'm just like, throwing a fit, you know. They gave us a studio, basically unlimited time to to do whatever we wanted. So I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to knock them after that. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I mean, they. They gave us two of the most fantastic human beings in our industry, Arif Mardin and Tommy Dowd, and they called them supervisors. So, you know, really, we were the creative control. So it was like working in a, oh, how should I say? I mean, it's like if the soil could be any more fertile than this, you know what I'm saying? It was just like whatever you put in there. Wow, look at that. It was just, it was wonderful. A lot of history there from Felix of the Rascals, as told to myself and Roger Ashby in the late 80s. Here, Felix talks about the return of the Rascals in 1985. At what point did you did you realize that the uh, Rascals music was coming back into vogue? Wow, 85. Uh, we, you know, we went into this deep sleep, <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden that big chill came out. Now that was a triple platinum album. You know, it was incredible. You know, uh, and the geniuses of our industry said, "Hey." You know, there's a market out there for this music because they don't know anything. I don't care what anybody says. The people behind the desks, they make me laugh so hard, you know. 85. And uh, I tell you the truth, I really didn't think it was going to be what it is right now. It's incredible, you know, because there's, ge- there's a genuine kind of like, uh, oh, the people that were there just want to go out and say, hey, you know, I had such a great time in those years, and for one night of the week, these kids could leave me alone, and I'm going to go out and party. And it's great. I love it. I love it when they bring their kids. I get such a kick out of it because, you know, if you get the right place and the right atmosphere, the parents usually go a little wild. You know, now it's the kids' turn to see their parents freaking out. It's great. As we heard during our Motown episodes, the music of the Temptations had a resurgence after the Big Chill as well. And you can tell how thankful and happy Felix was by that resurgence. Johnny Angel, how I love him. He's got something that I can't resist. From the fall of 1961, Shelley Fabre and Johnny Angel. Shelley Fabre's is the picture of humility when she talks about her unwanted recording career but she still emerged with a number one record. Well, it all started um, very strangely. I didn't want to record in the first place, and I was 
asked by the producer of the Donna Reed show to uh, make some recordings for the following year on the series. And I said no for quite a long time. And uh, finally they said, well, just try it. And so we made some demonstration records that were just awful. And I thought, well, at least that will put an end to any thoughts of a recording career that they might have for me. And uh, it turned out that they listened to the demonstration records in New York. And they said, yes, we'll try to record her. I was shocked, to put it mildly. And we finally came up with a couple of songs, one of which was Johnny Angel. And then it came out and uh, became number one, much to everyone's amazement, mine mostly. You know what? I remember when she hit number one because right next to her on the charts was her TV co-star Paul Peterson with his song, My Dad. Was Paul (laughs) Peterson the same guy who had hit with She Can't Find Her Keys? (laughs) Yes. That is a hundred points for you, buddy. (laughs) You might you might not be a child of the sixties, but you're going to win the trivia contest. I guarantee. Uh, Well, thank you. Well, I was I I was an infant in the sixties. I was born in 1962, and so when a lot of these songs came out, there's just no way I could remember them. One of my earliest memories is like from 1970, listening to "Let It Be," that kind of thing. But later in my life, around the late 80s. I DJed at an oldies club in downtown Toronto called Studebakers. Oh. I'd had a great love of oldies music, probably starting around the big chill time, so around 83. So that really got me into oldies. And then by the time I hit Studebakers and was spinning all of these songs, which is why I know the song She Can't Find Her Keys, um, I really got neck deep into the music of the 60s and just love it to this day. It's funny where we learn about these kinds of songs, because I definitely know lots of songs that came before I did. But Mm -hmm. I realized that it's those nights where I had the transistor under the pillow. My parents thought I was sleeping. (laughs) And I listened to a guy named Bob Lane, who did the all night show at Chum AM. And he had a thing called the Golden Galaxy, which he would play between three and four. And I used to try so hard to stay awake because I wanted to hear all those great old songs. Right. That's amazing. I knew Bob. You know, it's interesting because Bob Lane, who has passed away in recent years, he was actually a bit of an influence on this show because Bob Lane was one of the producers of a show that Marilyn Dennis and I did um, in the late 90s, early 2000s called Music Online, where we interviewed the likes of Lionel Richie, Jennifer Lopez, Janet Jackson, Tina Turner, Stevie Nicks, those kinds of artists. And that was what got me into the archives, and that's what gave me the idea to start this show. I did not know that. So shout out to Bob Lane, who had a great history with Chum and Canadian music in general, the music industry, the radio industry. Um, And so it's great that you remember him, and I knew him because I I dealt with him on a day-to-day basis for a number of years. I met him once. Uh, We were in Winnipeg, and I was on a Much Music tour, and I was ushered into his office, and they were like, hey, this is Christopher Ward from from Much Music, and this is, you know, Bob Lane, blah, blah, blah. I went, Bob, I know your voice so well. And I was kind of nervous. I said, I I used to stay up or try to stay up until 3 in the morning to hear the Golden Galaxy. He said, yeah, I used to try to stay up too. (laughs) (laughs) Charming guy, charming guy. He really was. He was one of those very friendly guys who had a lot of stories to tell, and most of them were true. (laughs) (laughs) The 60s. Sylvia Tyson provides a very clear-eyed look back 
and she explains the reasons why she did not want to perform as Ian and Sylvia, despite the fact that this interview took place when they were doing a one-off reunion show. How tough was it to, to actually, the first time you hit the rehearsal studio and sort of set down the tunes that you were going to do and start singing? It must have been pretty tough. I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't nearly as hard as I thought. Some of them we just fell back into so easily. And in some ways, the older songs were easier because not having done them in all those years, we still sing them in much the same way. On the other hand, songs like like Someday Soon and, and You Were On My Mind that both Ian and I like individually have been doing in our own shows all these years, we sing very differently now than we sang them when we were originally working together. So it's really a heavy adjustment to new phrasing and, and little passing words and and even little melody changes that happen when, when you, you become that familiar with a piece of material. Those were the hardest ones, but the old songs came together very quickly. And I might add, too, that uh, we were a little worried about the blend because we just haven't sung together in so long. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, also, during the period of Ian and Sylvia, I mostly sang harmonies, and I, I had never been really a lead singer. I would do maybe three or four songs in a night where I would sing lead. But most of, of my vocal career was spent adjusting to Ian's voice mm-hmm. as a harmony singer. I'm sure this is something that you've had to think about and that you're going to have to deal with. You're doing this one-time-only reunion. You stipulate it's a one-time-only reunion. I'm sure Ian feels the same way. But there is obviously going to be pressure on the both of you to carry on something after the 18th? We have had one offer, uh, a firm offer. Um, I, we really don't... We, we have our own careers. We have our own music. We're very much involved with them. We, we live, uh, like, how many thousands of miles apart, you know? Um, and whereas we're very friendly and we have similar roots in music, what we do now is very different, and it's a real effort. To do it, and I hate to sound mercenary, but I don't think they could pay us enough money, basically, yeah. to do a string of Ian and Sylvia reunion concerts across North America. Would you really want to do it, though? No, no, I wouldn't, and I, I know Ian wouldn't either. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad we're doing this this one. I, it'll be fun to do it once. I think the thing is, too, that neither Ian nor I are very nostalgic people. I think that the audience is quite nostalgic about this material. Uh, Ian and I aren't. We're proud of the material. Um, the, we feel that the, the best of the, that material was was great, and it holds up as well now as it did when we did it. And I have to say that there are some of our contemporaries that I can't say that about. Some of the music from that period I just can't listen to It's now. so dated. And so badly done. Yeah, well, I guess in a technical yeah. sense, you mean? Or? No, just it wasn't very good to begin with. It was time and place and, and got across a certain point at that time. But it just was not very good music, some of it. And I think that the best of our stuff holds up with anything that's happening now, not necessarily in the terms of, of fancy production, but in terms of good, solid music, well done. Four strong winds that blow lonely, seven seas that run high. That's Four Strong Winds, Ian and Sylvia from 1963, a wonderful interview with Sylvia Tyson from 1986 on the eve of that one-off reunion gig with Ian. And she's so straightforward there, and I just love that clip. Great songwriter, too. Oh, for sure. And I wonder... 
From 1961, Del Shannon and Runaway. Tom, Del Shannon happily admits to a little bit of theft when it came to deciding on a stage name. It came about when I was in uh, Battle Creek. I was working a club there. And the guy, uh, the guy used to come in there, he drank quite a lot. He's always going to be a wrestler. He's a big guy. And he said, I'm going to be called Mark Shannon. And I said, Shannon, ah, oh, that's a great name. And I knew he wouldn't be no wrestler. So I stole his name, the Shannon. And then I uh, always wanted a Cadillac because I was always poor. And my friend had a DeVille. And that's it. DeVille, Dell. Came from that. And in case you're wondering, Del Shannon's real name was Charles Westover. And I got to tell you, I think Chuck Westover would have been a great name. <laughs> it sounds like a breed of small dog. <laughs> you know what, Tom? Del had the very first Lennon and McCartney song to appear on the U.S. charts. He covered the song From Me to You. Oh, wow. Okay. I had no idea. Yeah. That is indeed a cool song fact. Tom, the Shirelles hit number one with one of the greatest songs of the Brill Building era, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. To me, that's just a perfect song. Yes. It also jump-started the career of one of the most prolific songwriting teams of all time, Carole King and Jerry Goffin. Here's one of the Shirelles, we're not sure who, but likely lead singer Shirley Owens telling us the story. Well, Carole King uh, brought the record to our uh, producer at the time, Luther Dixon, and it sounded like a hillbilly record. And... She sang it to us, and we did the record, and she played the kettle drums on the session because she liked the way he was playing them. And that became one of our biggest records, but at first, it sounded like something you wouldn't believe. But after she got together, it was tremendous, one of our greatest things. Me Tomorrow, the Shirelles from 1960. What a classic. Yeah, so let's hear from Carol King herself. She gives full credit to her main collaborator and former husband, Jerry Goffin, for his lyric writing abilities. Songs written by Jerry and me, you must remember that Jerry wrote the lyrics. And so you have to remember that the lyrics are representing him. But you also, and of, you know, of course, I'm, I'm counting songs that like, you know, that have kind of stood up over the times. I'm not counting the uh, schlocky commercial songs whose names are better left unmentioned. <laughs> I think that they represent me in that I like all those lyrics that he wrote, the ones like Hey Girl, Up on the Roof, or most of the Drifters hits that we had when my little girl was smiling, We Love Me Tomorrow, Natural Woman, Oh No, Not My Baby, songs like that, that genre. They rep those lyrics represent me insofar as um, that's Jerry speaking, and he's speaking for himself, but what he's saying are things that I totally agree with and maybe could not quite feel or express in the same way. Great Aretha Franklin with You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, 1967. Wonderful performance by Aretha with lyrics by Jerry Goffin. Kind of amazing when you think about it that he wrote the lyrics to that song. True enough. Lulu tells an animated story of how she came to be in the film To Sir With Love and sing the title song. Well, um, I was about 16 at the time and I was on a tour with the Beach Boys uh, all over... Um, Great Britain, and I was quite thrilled to hear that the director um, who actually did the film to sell with love, Mr. James Clavell, was going to come to see me. 
So he came to see me and, and saw the show and came backstage and said, you know, I'd like you to be in this film with Sidney Poitier. Well, I nearly fainted. <laughs> I thought, Sidney Poitier, my gosh. So um, then he said to me, of course, but you have to change the colour of your hair. So I gave him a look and I said, are you kidding? If you want me, you want me the way I am. And he said, and then I sort of could have bitten my tongue because I thought, uh-oh, you're not going to get this part. But he laughed and he said, that's just the way I want you to react in the film. In other words, I was cheeky to start with. Cheeky, I believe, is a, is a very English word, which means, um, oh gosh, I can't think of a, a Canadian way of explaining it. It's just um, the way I answered him, you know, and that's the way he wanted me to be in the film. So I got the part for the film, and they said, also, when, when you're in the film, we'd like you to sing the title song. Well, it's very funny because um, The Sarah Would Love happened to be written by my manager's husband, Mark London, who just happens to be a Canadian. And uh, the thing was that we, we got lots of songs in. I listened to them, and I didn't like any of them. Nobody was too happy with them. So I knew Mark could write songs. I said to Mark, please, oh, please, Mark, write me a song. And he said, well, you know... He, he just didn't think anyone would like it and he didn't think he'd be good enough or something or other. Writers, you find, are like that, you know. Anyway, I finally talked him into it and he actually wrote it in two minutes. I wrote the tune and got um, his friend Don Black to write the lyrics. And I went mad for it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. And I don't think I was wrong. <laughs> so when the whole thing was a success, I mean, it was just so thrilling for me. Oh, wonderful. To Sir With Love, 1967, Lulu. And that clip perfectly captures Lulu's spirit and her character from To Sir With Love. And that was one of the very first movies I ever saw in a theater. And honestly, I found it really magical. Now, I was five when the movie came out, so I think I saw it a few years later. But I know it was in a theater. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, and I know it was in a theater, which is odd, because it would have been probably like 1970 by then, by the time I saw it. But I was blown away by it, and I loved her. And, I, of course, I love Sidney Poitier in it. And the, the whole cast of characters, uh, it was just such a wonderful experience for one of my very first movies. Good story. Whew. Well, that does it for an absolutely epic three-part series on the 60s. Our show was co-written and produced by me, Tom Jokic. My co-host and co-writer is the wonderful Christopher Ward, who also wrote the theme song with the great Rob Wells. Our executive producer is Sarah Cummings. Special thanks to all the radio stations across Canada that carry the show, and to you for supporting us just by listening and telling your friends all about Famous Lost Words. <laughs>